Worship team, that was awesome. You know, just, you know, one of the things that they they get here early, um, and uh, you know, and, and Patrick, our worship pastor, is on sabbatical. And this morning, I come in, and they're like, "There's been technical challenges," and um, and we prayed, and 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 that was awesome. You guys did great, so thank you. Um, Today we were going to be in a sermon talking about, as far as kind of kind of wrapping up this series, we've been talking about life together, and then next week we're going to have a special um, sermon message tied to um, what's happening with VBS, and then we're moving into another series, but it really in some ways is a continuation of this one. Um, and it, in the next series it's called Blessed to be a Blessing. And, and it's really flowing out of this idea that we are called into this life together um, and we're going to be blessed, but we're also called to be a blessing to others. And it's a continuation of just what happens when we get into life together. And Sherry is going to be preaching on the 31st about prayer and the way that we bless through prayer. And, um, and, and I knew that and, and there was a message that I did not have planned, but I wanted to have planned and I decided I'd do it today. And we're going to talk about the fact of life together. We are called to be an encouraging community in every sense of the word, both to give comfort, consolation, but to give courage. And the, and the focus today is going to be on giving courage. I'm um, going to start with a, a little bit of a game. Um, I, I'm going to read for you... Um, some of the lines of a famous movie, and, and I'm gonna get, I'm, it's building up to one of the most iconic lines of any movie, especially in the last 30 years. And I'm gonna do it one line at a time and just give you a little more information. When you think that you know what the movie is, I want you to raise your hand. And um, don't say anything because I'm gonna guess that by the end, if you've seen the movie, you will know that this line that we get to. So here's the first one. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a smack. Keep, keep them up. We'll, we'll, we'll let this go. Now, at this point, there is a judge. And the judge turns to Colonel Jessup and says, you don't have to answer that question. Any more hands? No, that didn't help you at all. Okay. Now, I'll, I'll tell you that... that Tom Cruise is one of the people in this movie. And the other one is Jack Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson's character says, I'll answer the question. You want answers? Any, any more hands? Still no hands. Tom Cruise then says, I think I'm entitled. Jessup says, you want answers? And then Cruise says, I want the truth. No, I don't, not, not everybody's hands. Most, many of you, but not all of you. Okay, so here it comes. You can't handle the truth. Okay, so a few good men, right? There we go. I just want you to know that Jesus says something very different about truth. Jesus says, this is in John 8, verses 31 and 32. If you hold to my teachings, then you will really be my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And for Jesus, the truth is the way to real liberation. It is the way to life. 
When we hear these words, there is one part of this, though, that I think it's going to be hard for us not to miss here. We've had 200 years of really hyper-individualism, where we begin with myself and then we move to community later on. If we could hear these words really with a southern drawl, we might actually get a little bit closer to what Jesus was saying. If y'all hold to my teachings, then all y'all will really be my disciples, and then all y'all will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All by ourselves, it's probably likely that we can't handle the truth. There's a fundamental paradox of being human. We want to know the truth about ourselves, and we don't want to know the truth about ourselves. Left to ourselves, we will deceive ourselves. Typically, we want to know the good things, but we will try to ignore the bad things. I, I see a doctor shaking his head. <laughs> Some of us tend to believe all the bad things. This is, this is the way it goes. We're not all the same. Some of us will believe all the bad things and we'll have a hard time accepting all the good things. It can be different for different people. All by ourselves, we are adrift. And so when Jesus saves us, he saves us into a community, into a family. It's a peculiar community. It is to be marked by love and empathy. It is to be marked by forgiveness and compassion and reconciliation and worship and prayer and service and even witness. And it is a community that is called to the truth. Now, if we take what Jesus says in John 8 at face value, truth is liberating and not oppressive. Truth is practiced together, not alone or just in one direction where one person tells everybody what the truth is. But we are to live into the truth together. And truth is about following Jesus, who is our joy, our peace, our life, and our Savior. And I want to put forward to you that when we talk about being a community of truth, and even a community of truth tellers, what we're really talking about is being a community of encouragers. Let me read for you one of the great calls in the New Testament. It is a call to both life together, and it is a call to give one another courage to live life well. Um, this is from Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, um, and just so you know, because we have VBS and we're talking about the tabernacle, the writer of the book of Hebrews is looking back to the old covenant and the tabernacle, and saying that that was an image of the reality of heaven. And you and I, we get to be into the reality of what is most real, which is heaven. And we get to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts, and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled 
to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, all of this is intended to be encouragement that in the light of a holy God, you and I have been covered over so that by the blood of Christ so that sin no longer separates and we do not need to fear approaching him. But if we miss the encouragement, it goes even more. This is verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. We need to meet together with the purpose of giving courage because life is hard and you and I were called to that which is best. So fight the good fight. Don't shrink back from evil. Don't be cowered by the darkness. The one who is in us is greater than this world. We can't handle the truth all on our own. But God never expected us to do this all on our own. By his spirit and with one another. Listen to the book of Hebrews. Listening to the book of Hebrews, what I want to do today is build a four-legged stand. Four observations coming directly from these words of encouragement about how we are to live together as a community of encouragers. The first leg is to accept that we need truth-tellers in our life. We need some friends that we have invited to call us back to Jesus to help spur us on towards love and good deeds. We need truth tellers because the ability to live in denial is astounding. It is a part of the problem of the fall. Every area of our life is touched by sin, including our ability to reason, including our ability to remember. You and I have the ability not just to forget, but to misremember to even deceive ourselves about not just what happened, but what is actually real. In the book, Not the Way That It's Supposed to Be, Neil Plantiga writes, we deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We prettify ugly realities and sell ourselves the prettiest versions. Because of pride as well as insecurity, we can become habitual liars. We convince ourselves that, well, occasionally, I'll finesse the truth, but I'm really only finessing the truth to try to save your feelings. There is a whole field of social psychology, the study of cognitive dissonance, that examines the endless ability for us to justify what we do or say so that we can maintain our perceived self-concept. Now, what studies show is, is that in some way, we are all like the person who is on the strict diet from their doctors that they need to lose a lot of weight. And so, 
They're driving down the road and they see the alluring lights of Krispy Kreme donuts. And they sit there and they say, okay, I'm not supposed to stop unless there is a parking space that's open right in their parking spot because that's a sure sign from God that he's telling me that I've been doing really well for a while and that I deserve a little bit of a treat. And after the sixth drive around the block, sure enough, there's that spot that's open. And then we go and we take the donut. And all of us in some way have this ability to deceive ourselves in choosing things that really aren't good for us. Who have you asked to help you grow up in Christ by being a truth teller in your life? All of us have this ability to deceive ourselves. If you haven't asked a few people to help you grow by speaking truth into your life, why not? It's altogether possible that many of us don't ask because we don't want to have to face reality. It's like avoiding the scale. If I, if I step on the scale, I know what it's going to say, and I don't want to know what it's going to say, so I'm just going to walk on by. We, if we really want to take seriously growing up in Christ, we not only need to invite some people, but we need to be the type of people that know how to encourage one another by speaking truth, but doing it in such a way that really gives courage and doesn't beat people up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, from his book, Life Together, where he gives this great call of the value of Christian community, this is what he writes on this. One who, because of sensitivity and vanity, rejects the serious words of another Christian cannot speak truth in humility to others. You, first of all, have to be somebody who can hear it before you try to speak it. Such a person is afraid of being rejected and feeling hurt by another's words. Sensitive and irritable people will always become flatterers, and very soon they will come to despise and slander other Christians in their community. When another Christian falls into obvious sin, an admonition is imperative because God's word demands it. The practice of discipline in the community of faith begins with friends who are close to one another. Words of admonition and reproach must be risked. I want to put forward that you and I, if we are seriously going to grow up in Christ, if we're going to take seriously the call to become more of who God wants us to be, we're going to need to be the type of people who not only speak truth, but hear truth, who are willing to risk not only inviting people to speak truth, but being willing to risk speaking truth into some other people's lives, but it must be done with love. First leg of the stand, we need some truth tellers in our life. Second leg of the stand, they need to be friends who give us courage to become our best selves. The word that gets translated in the book of Hebrews, um, encourage, in Greek it literally means to call alongside. If you wanted to do kind of an active translation, come to me with the idea of, 
I'll help you. I'll be with you. I'll support you. I'll encourage you. Now, even more interestingly is, is that there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this same word, parakaleo, that's used in the New Testament, it translates a group of words in the Old Testament, and they all have this connotation to them. Comfort. Somebody who makes you feel good. Remember what we talked about, empathy? You got cat people, you got dog people, you need some people who make you feel good. The truth tellers in your life that are going to be real encouragers to you are going to be people who are for you. They want to see you at your best. You and I need to make a decision or a group of decisions about following Jesus. William Paulson is one spiritual writer and he says, It is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with Jesus in a haphazard way. Any significant change in your life requires a lot of effort and intentionality. And following Jesus and being transformed into his character is no different. Now, I would put forward to you that I think every follower of Jesus Christ should have a plan about how you are trying to grow. As a general rule, the plan is going to include some things like this. Time with God preferably every day, where there will be some prayer and some scripture. Once a week, gather with the body of Christ for corporate worship. Time regularly, mostly weekly, with a smaller gathering of believers where you commit to grow together. Time serving God and people, at least on a weekly basis, and here's a little bit of encouragement. I mean, there's this part where it's fine. What's my spiritual gift? But instead of really focusing on what's my spiritual gift, how am I a gift to this particular community? How can I make a difference right now for other people? Targeted spiritual disciplines that help you win the battle against sin. If there's an area of your life where you know that you're failing, you're going to work at it because it leads to death. It's not good. It's harmful. Put it all together, and you're going to develop a healthy rhythm where you're going to live, and you're going to work, and you're going to be in relationships, and, and you're not going to become too busy because busyness gets in the way of a real relationship and real prayer and all that stuff. And once a week, you're going to take a day, and it's going to be a Sabbath rest. And it's not going to be marked by the regular rhythms of busyness and work and demands and schedules. But it's going to be a day committed to the Lord. Many of you, ideally, it'll be Sunday. Gathering for corporate worship can be a great part of that. But it won't work for everybody because, well, the world that we live in doesn't really support that, does it? Now, let's say that you do something like that. You develop a plan for spiritual growth. Into that decision matrix, you're going to need some friends that help you. People who we know want the best for us, but people that we've invited into these decisions to call us to our best selves. Just as mountain climbers rope together for a climb... Just as athletes who want to compete at their best work out with trainers and coaches... So it is in every area of life where, where people want to do it their best. 
They can't do it by themselves, but they need a group of support. People who think they can live life, about, on, life at their best on their own intentions is a recipe for disasters. Weight Watchers, Alcoholics Anonymous are structured around this simple reality. David Watson writes, anything that is subject to human limitation or error requires the collegial presence of another person to ensure responsibility. It is a simple fact of life. All significant Christian revivals through church history have centered around communities of people who commit to following Jesus together. Maybe one of the most famous, John Wesley, helped spur one of the great revivals, and it was structured on Christians meeting together in small groups to hold one another accountable to their deepest values and most important decisions. Wesley called it watching over one another in love. Let me share with you some of the questions that they asked people who wanted to commit to be in one of these small groups. As I, as I read these to you, ask yourself, would you be willing to commit this with a small group of people? Does any sin, inward or outward, have dominion over you? Share about that. Do you desire to be told of your faults? Do you desire to be told of all of your faults? And then that speaking of those faults would be plain and clear to you. And then, and it says this, consider... Do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Do you desire that in doing this we should come as close as possible, that we should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom? Is it your desire and design to be on this and all other occasions entirely open so as to speak everything that is in your heart without exception, without disguise, and without reserve? I want to put forward to you that this sort of commitment to wanting to grow up into Christ, but this sort of commitment of getting real with one another, it is, it is what the, the writer of Hebrews is picturing when he is talking about, let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Because the day is approaching, and now is a time for us to live, and now is a time for us to make a difference on this earth. The third leg of our stand is that we need a cloud of witnesses to remind us of what God can and do through us. We need people who will encourage us. We need people who are for us. We need people who want to see us at our best. But we need to be inspired. And what's interesting is, is that right after this admonition, this call, this call to encourage us to live the Christian life, the writer of Hebrews then gives us chapter 11 which gives us this great testimony about the cloud of witnesses who's gone before, who, who've lived this life of faith. God wants to partner with you and me. He wants to do great things in you. He wants to do great things in me. He doesn't want us just to aim for what you and I can do by ourselves, but he wants us to aim for what God can do in and through us. 
Chapter 11 gives us 17 individuals where we get something of the way that they live their lives by faith and what God did through them. And then there's a whole host of ones where if I had more time, I'd tell you about these people as well, but I don't. But let me tell you something. The human being, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And when we see people live by faith in God, it is amazing. Let me read for you just one. This is the testimony that the writer of Hebrews gives about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover, the application of blood, So that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And, you know, most all of you know the rest of the story. Moses led the Israelites out from underneath Pharaoh. And through Moses, God parted the Red Sea, took him to the other side, went up on the mountain, gave him the Ten Commandments. The mountain shook, the people saw. It's amazing. Let me tell you another story, a story of a cloud of witnesses about what God can do. She was a stay-at-home mom. She loved her family, but Jesus filled her heart. She had a heart for kids, and she wanted kids to know their Bibles because she wanted them to know Jesus. So, of course, she was a Sunday school teacher, but then there was the need at church for a children's director. She had never imagined doing something like this. But she prayed. And she talked with her pastor. And John Zimmerman encouraged her. You should try. I'll be with you. I'll give you encouragement. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Sue Hinkle. Sue Hinkle became one of our children's directors, and she ended up writing and publishing Sunday School Curriculum. And you've already heard, the VBS that we're doing this week was her creation. Um, Sue was on my call committee, so I had the opportunity to get to know her before she died. And um, she told me this story about the way that God did amazing things in and through her, things that she would have never expected. And, um, and she touched the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of children. And it was always this person who loved and wanted them to know God's word and wanted them to know all the books of the Bible. <laughs> there are still giants of faith who walk among us. They are living the call. God is shining in and through them. And you and I, we need a cloud of witnesses. We need to see faith lived out in the flesh. Finally, the fourth leg of our stand. We need a band of brothers and sisters to help us align with reality. We are inundated with secular voices that are trying to shape the world to their reality. And the forces of this world are trying to squeeze us into their mold. 
into their version of the truth. How much time do you spend being shaped by the body of Christ? And how much time would that be compared to how much time the world is really having its influence on you? Let me focus on the way we can, one way that we can help one another align with reality. And it is inspired directly by the, the, the passage that we're studying in Hebrews. It is helping people remember what time it is. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for we were promised for the one he, for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and then here comes the time reference and all the more as you see the day approaching all the more as you see the day approaching you and I as we understand time according to biblical time, is that we live between the ages. The old age is passing away, the new age is, is upon us, and that new age is eternal life. It is life with God forever, and it will finally be ushered in when Jesus comes back on that day of judgment, when evil will finally be put in its place forever, and then those who are followers of Jesus will be brought into eternity with him. One of the ways that Jesus transformed the world was he gave people a new clock, a new way to order time. We no longer live just for this life, nor was the threat of death a thing to be feared. There is a day that's coming when Jesus will return and death has already been defeated. We do not have to worry about the future and we do not have to worry about our eternal destination. Our, our hope is light and life. It is not the expectation that when we die, we're going to a dark, shadowy place like most people in the ancient world believed. Time is not against us, but time is for us. But don't be caught unaware. This day will come like a thief in the night. So wake up. Live in the light. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for you to start following Jesus. And this little band of brothers and sisters who followed Jesus transformed the way the world looked at time. Time became sacred. The rhythms of our lives were gathered and centered in Christ. Under the church, people still observed work time and harvest time and even war time. But as the way of Jesus took hold of people, all those things were subsumed underneath what we could call sacred time. Time where Jesus is the center. The church built bells, bell towers that would ring out, calling people to gather for time is sacred. The monasteries, their bells and their monks were the clocks of society. Sacred time infused the present with eternity itself. And those who most understood about time were the people who prayed and the people who listened to scripture and they called everybody else to God and to find their lives with Jesus Christ. Their goal was to help people gather in time. Today, we live in a much different age. We call it a secular age. 
And it is secular because sacred time has evaporated. Our timekeepers are Silicon Valley and the masters of the digital universe. Time is about change and getting what is new. In this secular age, instead of keeping time, the church is always behind the times. At least that's what we're told. The message is that the church needs to change because it's out of date. If it does not change, it will die. Catch up or you'll be left behind. Of course, don't all of us feel this pressure? That we need to catch up or we're going to be left behind? The need to innovate technology. Not only innovating technology, but our lives, our social lives, our morals. We need to innovate the very pace in which we live. Now, what's interesting here is, is that we modern people, we hear the warnings in the New Testament. And the, the modern part of us, the secular part of us, it may cringe a little bit about like this saying that the day is near. Final judgment? That seems kind of old and antiquated, right? I mean, that seems kind of narrow, non-tolerant. That's terrible. But what's interesting is, is that when Silicon Valley says that you need to innovate, change, or die, nobody blinks an eye. Modernity has changed the way that we experience time. Time is speeding up. Let me give you a small example. Less than 140 years ago, in 1883, America standardized its clocks, producing the five time zones. Before that time, you could be in New Orleans, and Baton Rouge, which is just down the road, would, their clocks would be 30 minutes different than yours. You could be in Massachusetts, you could be in like Boston and New York would be 30 minutes difference. And the thing is, is that nobody really cared because your only mode of transportation was a horse. And so it just didn't matter all that much. And then we invented trains. And then we laid railroad tracks. And then we were able to get people to places much quicker and efficiently. And out of that change of technology we then ended up needing to standardize time because we couldn't, we, well, people were running, they, there was a schedule, and you had to be there. And if you weren't all on the same page of what time it was, then things would be delayed, and that would be terrible. Just so you know, when this innovation happened, everybody was scared. Could the human brain handle going 25 miles an hour at a constant speed for a long time was a real fear when that technology came. Now, after trains, we then had new technology to help tie us together. The end of the 19th century, they invented the radio. It took 38 years for the radio to get to 50 million users. Now, a quarter century later, they invented the television. And where it took 38 years to reach 50 million viewers, it only took 13 years for the television to reach 50 million viewers. And when the internet came out, it only took four years from the first time somebody went on the internet to when 50 million users started using the internet. And in 2007, the iPhone first came out, and now in 2022, iPhone 13 is available. 
And if you don't have an iPhone 13, you better have a 12. And if you don't have a 12 and you only have 11, you're almost a dinosaur. And if you're still with an iPhone X, for goodness sakes, come on, people. Of course, we're not just dinosaurs if we have an old iPhone. We're dinosaurs if we follow the biblical sex ethic. If we hold that Jesus is the only way of salvation. If we claim that there are certain moral absolutes. If we say, in the beginning, God created us male and female, and there is no such thing as non-binary human beings. The new timekeepers claim tolerance and innovation. We're just trying to improve your life. Let me quote for you episode four of season five of HBO's Silicon Valley to give you a window into modern tolerance. A startup company is debating whether it should allow a Christian dating app on their network. And one of the characters responds, You can be openly polyamorous and people will call you brave. You can put microdoses of LSD in your cereal and people will call you a pioneer. But the one thing that you cannot be in our society is a Christian. And not everybody believes that. But being a Christian means following a different keeper of time. And his way of keeping time is too morally restrictive for our secular society. And so we need a band of brothers and sisters who will call us to truth and help us align with reality. There is a time to work. And there is a time for innovation and there is a time for change. But being busy all the time is not good for the human soul. There is a time for rest. Living to maximize our time so that we can squeeze every second of efficiency so we can get the most out of life really isn't a very good investment in light of eternity. We should be much more concerned about what type of people we are becoming. Are we, are we just people fit for this age? Are we becoming people prepared to enter eternity with our Lord and Savior? Bankers, tech investors, the woke, and all sorts of entrepreneurs and leadership gurus tell Christians, we better hurry up. We better catch up with the times. You need to change or you will die. You need to let go of the past and you need to embrace the present. And if you won't change, you'll become obsolete. Speed up or disappear. It's the same message, it's just a different timekeeper. What basis do they make their prophecies? You know that the speeding up of, of our society is it has a direct correlation with depression. And it is why depression is a part of this age. Where do they place their trust? And we all know we're a little bit concerned because we know technology can make things go well, but we also know that technology can make things go very, very bad. But you and I, we walked to the beat of a different drummer. Why? Because there was a man who came from outside of time who was born into the flesh, who entered into time and space so that he could empathize with us in every way, and yet he himself never touched evil. He himself never did evil. 
I probably need to rephrase that because he did touch us who are evil. More than happy to embrace us and to hug us and to bring us in and to say we can become more. His was not an ethic of avoidance. His was an ethic of embrace. He died, but he had power over death. And he has risen from the dead so that we earthbound creatures could be taken up out of this present moment and brought into eternity where the present time will no longer define us and no longer hinder us. The man from out of time has all the time in the world because he is the master of time and he calls us to trust in him. Today is a day of salvation. And while there is a time for work, there is a time for rest and there is a time for innovation and creativity. There is also a time for remember, remembering and celebrating what has gone before. I want to call all of us to live into being the people of God, which is a people together where we encourage one another and we call one another to truth and, we, and we, we both hold on to the past but we look to the future but we look to the future with hopeful expectation because Jesus has all of time wrapped up. He knows the beginning and he knows the end and it's all going to work out okay. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. This world that we live in. But do not lose heart. He has overcome this world. Will you pray with me?